Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. In this special bonus event, we are joined by the wonderful Dr. Randy Bell to discuss his new book, Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. Dr. Bell is a sociologist and economist who specializes in disaster recovery projects and has consulted on hundreds of high-profile cases all around the world for decades. If something is in the news, Dr. Bell was there. So much so that he is known as the master of disaster. In his work, he has observed the trauma cycle very closely over and over with the victims he gets to know and help. In his new book, Dr. Bell outlines a path to not only get through trauma, but to reach your highest potential going forward. We absolutely loved our discussion with Dr. Bell, and we highly recommend his new book, Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience, and also his podcast of the same name. This The Good Book Club bonus event was recorded on February 28, 2023. So welcome, everybody. I'm Rebecca Biblioteca, and this is The Good Book Club. This is a special bonus event that we're having on Tuesday, February 28th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And we are absolutely thrilled to have the guests that we have on today. We have the wonderful and amazing Dr. Randy Bell here to talk about his new book available in paperback, hardback, and now on audio uh, post-traumatic thriving, the art, science, and stories of resilience. We are just absolutely thrilled that he's joining us here tonight. I just finished the book this morning and I just can't recommend it enough. It was absolutely amazing. Um, I think we'll start by reading a brief bio of Dr. Bell. And I say brief because there's so much more to it, but I could only fit that much on the slides. So you really need to, <laughs> you really need to Google him and see all the incredible projects and endeavors that he's involved in, but we'll start with this. So Randall Bell, PhD, is a sociologist and economist who specializes in disaster recovery projects. No stranger to how harsh the world is, Dr. Bell has consulted in more tragedies around the world than anyone. He has re he has he was retained for the World Trade Center, Flight 93, Sandy Hook, BP oil spill, Hurricane Katrina, um, the Bikini Atoll nuclear test sites and the Northridge earthquakes, O.J. Simpson, JonBenet Ramsey, Heaven's Gate, and hundreds of other cases. He has been retained by the federal governments of the United States, Canada, and Australia to help resolve numerous crises, and his work has generated billions of dollars to rebuild damaged communities. Dr. Bell's investigations have taken him to 50 states and seven continents. Having met with countless victims, he earned the nickname of master of disaster. <laughs> oh my goodness. In every case, Dr. Bell observed the emotional consequences and how some fared better than others. He was inspired to put his unique research skills to work and study the cycle of trauma. In post-traumatic thriving, Dr. Bell lays out the academic research and speaks freely about his trauma of being born with a congenital heart defect. Diagnosed with PTSD, he utilized these principles to heal from his childhood trauma and summit Africa's Mount Kilimanjaro at 60. So without anything more from me, let's go straight to our main event and welcome everybody, the amazing Dr. Randy Bell. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, 
Thanks for the invite. This is the book. It came out last month and uh, things have been pretty thrilling so far. Uh, I also just want to quickly mention, I've got a podcast that I do with Tanya Brown, who's the sister of Nicole Brown Simpson. And uh, we we have guests on. We've had uh, Buttafuoco. We had the real Jerry Maguire, uh, Lee St uh, Steinberg. We had... Um, Recently, the guitarist from Corn, who played at Woodstock. We've had some pretty interesting guests. I got to tell you, with both the book and the podcast, the word Mormon has not come up once. And uh, I, uh, the, the, the discussion we're having is just very, very broad. But tonight, I'm going to focus in on some of the issues we deal with as uh, in the nuanced or post-mo community. Um, I, I start the book with the end, and I do that on purpose. And Rebecca, would you mind reading that, please? Yeah, I'll be happy to. I'm just reading this right from the book. It's, uh, it's called The End, and it says, And then it happens. We wake up in this new place. It feels right. The old triggers now pass harmlessly through our minds. Our hearts are calm. We are grounded. Our vision is clear. We are at peace with where we have been, and we are at peace with what we have been through. We are at peace with the people around us, and we are at peace with where we are headed. Our souls are ignited. Our old traumas are now the fuel to do something remarkable. And now that we know how our story ends, let's look at the journey that led us here. Yeah, so the, the point here is that trauma is often misunderstood as some magical way to do a kind of a memory wipe and remove the memory altogether. That doesn't happen. Who's going to forget about the Holocaust or a horrible crime or or any number of things? That That's not the goal. The goal is to allow the memory of our trauma to pass harmlessly through our minds. In other words, to not be re-triggered. And I'm going to show some brain physiology in a minute to kind of uh, put a little more uh, depth on that conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's important that we just kind of start the discussion with trauma, understanding what the end goal looks like. It's it's not to be, it, the whole idea is to um, process the triggers so that we don't get that flash of anger or that flash of emotion. So here's the architecture of the book. And I, I, I this is the first time I think I've ever shown this in a slide in a quasi public setting. But basically, we've all heard, I think, uh, of the five stages of grief. Um, that's Elizabeth Kubler Ross. And that's in red. And so the first, the first, well, not the first, uh, but the, some of the first five chapters are those same things that will sound familiar with denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And then, I, the, but the my book, uh, I, I inserted the yellow to make a transition better. And so anything in yellow is what I, what I inserted. And I started with shock because that's really the first stop, uh, stop on this pathway of uh, trauma recovery. And then the blue comes from a more obscure academic literature that comes from uh, University of North Carolina. And all those categories came from, from that research. <laughs> so... This is all laid out in three sections, dive, survive, and thrive. And trauma recovery, it's a very big topic. The good news is that there is outstanding science 
and research that shows how it's done. The bad news is that a lot of that research is either obscure or it's highly academic and it's really not accessible to the general public. My mission was to get all the information gathered. It took me 15 minutes, uh, 15 minutes, 15 years to write the book and rewrite the book and then uh, lay it out in a, in a spectrum of chapters that kind of encapsulated the start of the journey to the very end of the journey, uh, well supported with the science and, and stories throughout it. So I hope that makes some sense. Basically, the concept is that you're at baseline, everything's just fine, and then all of a sudden there's a trauma, and you can pick what I call in the book the difficult Ds, death, disease, divorce, disability, depression, drugs, deconstruction, disaster. There's actually a lot more. The point is that by college age, 66 to 85 percent of us uh, will have experienced a trauma. By my age, it's pretty much 100%. It's, it's hard to ever find anybody in my uh, uh, age group that has dodged all trauma. Um, so th that's the problem. And, and to compound the problem is that these skill sets that the book lays out and that we're going to discuss tonight are not taught in school, generally speaking. And so this is a skill set we all really uh, need to know. And um, and then after the dive stage, we move, after we process really the five stages of grief, we get into the survive mode. Dive is where we get knocked down. We just get punched in the face. And then the survive stage is where we get back on our feet and we, we, we return to some level of baseline. But what I noticed in my research, and I started, uh, I started studying disasters in the 1980s, so it's been a while is that I noticed that some of my clients who are, are associates or people I, I met in the, in the course of my research started doing really remarkable things in terms of taking on a new cause, writing a book, um, um, you know, or, or, or having an invention. Uh, there's all kinds of examples. Um, they started doing things that were really standout amazing. And it's as if they tapped into the trauma's energy and used it as fuel to do something remarkable. And those are the thrivers. And the book is really about that breakout moment where people thrive. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. But in order to get to the thrive stage, you have to process the dive and survive stages first. Then you can move into thrive. And I read. I warn the readers um, of the book right up front. Don't skip to the end. That's a more uh, enjoyable section of the book to to read because it's got a it's, it's there's a lot of positive energy. But to really authentically get into the thrive stage, you have to deconstruct and you have to process the dive and the survive uh, stages. Then you can move successfully into the thrive stage. So. One of the big themes of the book is that we may not be responsible for our trauma, but we are responsible for our healing. And again, the science is outstanding to do that. Let's look at some of the science. I'm, I'm really simplifying. I, go, I get into it more in the book. but And I learned this concept, by the way, when I volunteered at San Quentin Prison. 
And we we don't have one brain. We actually have three brains. We have, <coughs> excuse me, the outer human brain. That's where we have our logic and reasoning and empathy for people on the other side of the planet. That's what makes us uniquely human. I mean, Bambi does not walk through the forest praying or having empathy for other deer on the other side of the world. These are these are uniquely human traits. The mammal brain is the emotions. I mean, mammals feel, uh, and, and ourselves included, obviously feel various emotions of uh, anger or excitement or all kinds of things. And the inner re reptilian brain is at the base of the spine. This is raw instinct. So what happens is you're going along, and then let's say you witness or you're in a car wreck. Well, the outer human brain turns off and the reptilian brain turns on. And this is kind of an evolutionary process. It's nature's way of protecting us and getting us to safety and channeling all the brain's energy into survival mode. So uh, the, that's good because it gets us uh, you know, away from the lion that's chasing us or whatever trauma we're experiencing us experiencing. But the problem is, is that when the trauma is over and we're, we're in a safe place, the memories of that trauma don't reside in the human brain where we can deal with it logically. Those, those memories reside in the reptilian brain. And that's why the memories are so distorted um, about recalling a trauma and not only distorted, they're oftentimes just suppressed or forgotten altogether. Um, it's because those memories go to an entirely different part of the brain. So the, the processes that we talk about in the book are an effort to get the memory out of the reptilian brain back into the human brain where we can properly process it. So if you read the book, you'll know what grounding means. And if you haven't, I'll explain it in a minute. But that's kind of the big picture with the physiology. Um, also, it's important to understand critical thinking. Uh, I did an episode with RFM and John DeLynn on critical thinking because, frankly, we don't learn that from our childhood uh, or, or earlier uh, religious experience in Mormonism. And we got to ask ourselves um, three questions plus a fourth. Aristotle's the first three. The first is, is it honest? Is this really honest? Secondly, is it ethical? Is it logos? Is it is it logical? Third, does it does it resonate emotionally? And then the the green I added is duos. Have I looked at both sides of the issue? Going to the sources of not just both sides, all sides of the issue. Going to those original sources. And in other words, I don't ask a Mormon bishop what Catholics believe. I go right to the Catholic. Uh, priest to ask them what they believe or pick any example you want. This is this is critical thinking and this is really um, an essential element in understanding <laughs> excuse me trauma recovery. The next concept is the science of happy and uh, this is really enlightening. This research came out of University of Riverside. The yellow is 50% of our happiness comes from our DNA. And so some of us have good, happy DNA, some of us don't. If we don't, uh, medications are outstanding at, at regulating that part of, um, of uh, uh, dealing with depression and that kind of thing. 
Only 10%, the red, are, of our happiness is dependent upon life circumstances. And the blue area is what's really interesting is that 40% of our happiness is dependent upon the activities we choose. And that's why as I go through the book, I'm introducing new activities. They're very simple, but they're very powerful and they are scientifically correlated with increasing our state of happiness and, and, uh, and as well as processing the trauma. So I wanted to reiterate this particular point, even though it's in the book, because it's, it's so important. Now, this graphic I just put together today, and, um, and, and it's uniquely Mormon, and this is not in the book, but the Mormon brain has kind of this idea that we're okay, you're not okay. In other words, right from the very beginning, you know, all other religions, all other worldviews are wrong. Their professors are all corrupt. Their creeds are all an abomination. So we, we have this Mormon brain that, in my case, I was born into that. Others convert into it and develop this way of thinking where we're okay, but you're not okay. And we need to send missionaries out to have you start, you know, uh, you know getting into line with what we believe. And uh, then <clears throat> something happens and we deconstruct. And this is where we say, this is not okay. Whether it's polygamy or Book of Mormon or Book of Abraham or social issues or the gospel topic essays, that's what got me, et cetera, et cetera. Something comes along where we start deconstructing. And that's really important. And that's kind of the dive stage uh, with, with the post-traumatic uh, thriving model. And, uh, and that can take years, it can take months. It, 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 there's various rules of thumb, I don't know which one's right, but that is the deconstruction process. Very, very difficult, a lot of people get very angry, uh, a lot of depression in this stage, and uh, it's, it's no fun to deconstruct. But then at some point, we gotta ask ourselves, okay, I've deconstructed, but now what do I reconstruct? And there are a whole bunch of new worldviews, atheism, agnostic, deist, theist, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, new age, spiritual, and other. I mean, um, there's all kinds of avenues to go, and I'm not here to really talk about <laughs> which one's right, because I, I don't even know that there's an answer to that. It's more what's right for you or right for me. And uh, But we start the reconstruction process. But it's a, it's a little more complicated than that because there's positive ways to reconstruct, there's neutral ways to reconstruct, and there are negative ways to reconstruct. The positive way is to basically have a worldview that I'm okay and you're okay. In other words, I'm okay because I found what works for me, and you're okay because you found what works for you. And the standard kind of language there is. You know, if somebody shares a belief system, uh, you know, to pick one off the list, you can, you know, a, a, a great response is uh, that doesn't work for me, but I am really happy it works for you and I'll support you in your journey. That's a really healthy worldview. Neutral is basically saying I'm taking a break. I, I don't know what's going on and I'm just kind of stepping out of this whole thing for a little while. Uh, but the negative is to say, I'm okay, you're not okay. 
And a lot of people coming out of high demand religions or high demand politics or uh, any number of, of uh, brain traps, if you will, have this view that they're okay, but if, you, if somebody else takes another point of view, they're not okay. And some of you probably already noticed, but look, that's not recovery. That's not trauma recovery. That is exactly the brain trap point of view. That's the Mormon brain point of view. And it's important to really call that out for what it is. That's not progress. That's just being stuck on the same treadmill and not really progressing in terms of our journey. So, um, you know, one of my best friends, I, I hiked Kilimanjaro with Sam Young. We just got back from hiking um, Mount Everest based a cough. Um, but Sam and I have had hours, days, weeks of conversations. Uh, and we agree on a lot of things. And on other areas, we just flat out are, are very opposed. But the reason we love each other so much is I'm okay calling Sam up and recommending a book. And he'll read it and say, I don't buy it. And here's why. And then he'll recommend a book to me and I'll read it. And I'll say, I don't buy it. Or sometimes we find a book and we both agree. Our friendship is not dependent upon agreeing with each other. Our friendship is dependent upon just a healthy exchange of information and the respect for each other and understanding where the other person is coming from without the feeling the necessity to agree or disagree and just being honest with who we are and respecting our friend for who they are. So enough of that. In the book, I start off in chapter one with two essential um, uh, techniques for trauma recovery. The first one is deep breathing exercises. This comes from Sarah Lazar out of Harvard Medical School. She did the brain scans where you can actually see the, the brain recovery um, and uh, from deep breathing, whether you call it grounding, meditation, yoga, Lamaze, I, I, it doesn't matter what you call it, but deep breathing exercises, again, very simple, but very, very effective. And then also sitting in the fire, that is having difficult conversations. On the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we had... Um, Wes uh, Gearon, he's the guitarist for Korn, uh, big rock star if you're into uh, rock music. And he said something absolutely profound. He said, you know what? The quality of our lives is dependent upon the number of difficult conversations we're willing to have. And that was just a brilliant moment because at least speaking for myself, Mormonism was very passive aggressive, we didn't have a lot of deep conversations, uh, at least I didn't, you know, with my parents, um, not a lot of deep conversations. A lot of things were very superficial. And part of trauma recovery is to um, is to have difficult conversations respectfully, constructively, but nonetheless have them. So that's, I think I probably got over my uh, uh, time I wanted to spend on this, but I wanted to kind of lay out these these frameworks and I am going to remove that and now just open it up to a conversation. 
Oh, awesome. Thank you so much, Randy. That was really, really interesting. I was saying before we started that I had just finished the book uh, finally this morning and I found it just absolutely wonderful and revelatory, if I can say that. Just so many concepts that were so interesting to me. So yeah, let's get to the fun part. Um, if anybody has a question or a comment for Randy, just raise your mechanical hand and let's get this discussion started. This is the good part. And thank you again, Randy. That was a wonderful kind of in a nutshell, you know, for those maybe that are here that haven't read the book yet, I'm sure this all encourage you to absolutely go out and get it and read it. So I'll let you, Randy, just field the questions and I'll mute myself. So, <laughs> All right. Can you see everybody who's raising their hand? I can see. I don't know how I see people. Ben, oh, I, oh, I see. Got a now. Question. Uh, Melanie, well, let's start with you. Yeah. So I um, thank you so much for your presentation. That is really great. Um, I've had a lot of therapy in my life and I, I understand trauma and um, I actually just downloaded the book. I just found out about this. And I was like, well, I'm going to go anyway. I'm sure there's going to be something I can glean before I read the book. I'm, what is really interesting to me and, and you hit it right at the end there with the passive aggressive and I was in Exmo Reddit and um, somebody said something about passive aggressive and I was like, that's where it came from. You know, I've been out for 20 years and um, I, I decided for my 40th, I was going to do the official, I'm going to resign. And over the last two months, I have, lo and behold, had a lot of um, su suppressed memories and things coming up that I just thought walking away and closing the door uh, was just going to be okay with. Um and I didn't realize the passive aggressive, you know, over the years I've learned through therapy how to have the um, the hard conversations that I'm doing all, all the work, but how how do you suggest we we break that habit of the passive aggressive Mormon? I'm, I'm not gonna talk about it because despite all the years of therapy, I still find myself avoiding and, and going to that typical Mormon passive aggressive and it bothers partners it bothers friends and it bothers me I know when I'm doing it oh my gosh I know when I'm doing it but it's so ingrained in you like you spent half your life doing that <laughs> yeah that, Melanie that's just such a that's such a you you, you started the the conversation at a really <laughs> excuse me meaning meaningful level I think you need to give yourself, and by the way, I am not a therapist. I'm a sociologist. So yeah. take, take what I, and I'm a researcher, uh, having researched this extensively. But I think the fact that, I think you should congratulate yourself. By, by being aware of your issue, that's a big part of it. Because a lot of people that have really serious issues aren't even aware of it. And don't even want to, or, or are kind of aware of it, but don't want to bring it up. And let's face it, this is a this is a messy topic. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking about you know PTSD. Who wants to talk about that? You're talking about you know the the 20 years of trauma. So give yourself a pat on the back, number one, really. And and also, you know, be kind to yourself. Take it in baby steps. There's no need to feel rushed. But when you're aware of it, maybe take a little step. Maybe you you should be doing taking 10 steps, but if you're only comfortable taking one of those 10, that's great. And maybe down the road, you'll take two. 
And for those who have read the book, you're very aware I use the term rinse and repeat over and over again. You know, I've been processing this, processing this stuff for years, and I just went up to Thrive in St. George and just went to a movie a uh, week before that, and I get re-traumatized. So sometimes you take four steps forward, five steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. Look at your overall trend. And, and again, I can't overemphasize the need to identify causes, identify self-care things that work for you and conscientiously do those things. Keep track of the trend and don't beat yourself up when you take steps back. We all do. What we're going through, everybody uh, I think is here because we feel traumatized. I know I have. And, um, and just be kind to yourself and, and give yourself credit. And that's the, the best shot I have at, at answering that really great question. Thank you. Yeah, thank I look you. forward to reading the book. So I, I'm excited. You know, yeah, thanks. And and by the way, I put the Kindle book, we could put the Kindle book up uh, for 99 cents. This is not a money-making venture for me. Anybody who writes books with rare exceptions, people with the hit the lottery, you, you know, you get you, you get X thousand dollars in royalties, but you spend X plus Y on PR and all the costs and everything else. I swear to you, the French fry captain at Burger King made more than I did writing this book. So I, I hope I don't come across like a salesman, but, um, you know, get the Kindle version and, and save money. Um, Bruce, I see your hand. Yeah, I just want you made a kind of allusion to your family. I've always described my Mormon family as polite acquaintances. I spoke at both of my parents' funerals. I knew what restaurants they liked. I knew what uh, I helped run their family business on the side for many years. Um, I knew what they thought about uh, owning apartment buildings and stuff like that, but we knew nothing about each other. They knew nothing about me. I knew nothing about them. And I try now with friends to to bring up topics that are more personal and and stuff. And I find people respond to it. But uh, like uh, Melanie said, I've had the same therapist for five or six years. Now I saw him this afternoon and that really helps. Yeah, yeah. Sitting in the fire, with preferably with a therapist, is absolutely essential. And uh, it's something that is really healthy and it's virtually impossible to recover from this stuff without a trusted friend or a therapist at the, at the very minimum journaling. But keeping it bottled inside, we start an internal war and that's that's what leads to uh, any host of problems. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Has... Uh, you know, oh. Bruce, I may put that in the next version of the book. A family that can be polite acquaintances. I'll give you credit if I do. Yeah, well, you know, or maybe um, I shouldn't. <laughs> my family, when we have Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and stuff, it's wonderful. My mom taught all of us, the men and the women, that everybody has to get up from the Thanksgiving table, put everything away. No one can sit down until the dishes are in the dishwasher. You know, everything is cleaned up. And then everybody can you know, watch TV or whatever they're going to do. Very nice and kind, uh, polite gatherings. But boy, we didn't know anything about each other um, at all. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, Landon, I'm going to get right to you. I, I I hear you loud and clear. I live in Laguna Beach. And uh, what's interesting is that the uh, a lot of my ward lives in the neighborhood and attends and attends, goes to the same beach. And, you know, we have I've gone out of my way to be polite and hopefully set a good example that POSMOs aren't devil-worshipping, uh, heroin-addicted uh, nut jobs uh, all the time, or virtually none of the time. And and those conversations are still polite, polite, polite acquaintances. But now I've got some buddies and some friends, so we can go very deep in our conversations very, very quickly, which I've never done before in my life. And it's really wonderful. So on the on the balance, costs versus benefits, the benefits are, are terrific. Um, but I loved your comments. Uh, Landon. Yeah, I really enjoyed your uh, presentation. Thank you for that. Short and sweet, but very informative. So I appreciated that. And, and you said you and Sam Young can disagree sometimes and, and still be friends. So I wanted to just challenge one thing on that arch that you had. Uh, you actually listed religion as as a thrive point. And I heard in your book, as you talked about that, you know, I, I can understand how, you know, falling back on a religion can be a point that helps you get over it. But it also can very much be the cause of the trauma, as we just mentioned at times. So how do you how do you tie those two together where it could be both? Yeah, great question. The actual word there isn't religion, it's faith. But I get your point. And let's talk about that. Um, it can and in the book, I fully disclose uh, that I have converted to mainstream Christianity. And I don't want to get into that. I don't proselytize. And I get into debates and fun debates with Sam and lots of people on that. But here's the real point. And in the book, and I'll reiterate it here, I'm talking, I mean, this is a, you know, atheist agnostics. I have lots of friends and family now leaving the church who are agnostic or atheists. Um, and when I go into the San Quentin prison, a lot of the very best volunteers are, uh, are, are atheists. So it's not so much, it's faith in something greater than yourself. And for a lot of people, that's not a religion, that's a cause, like volunteering in the prisons or something like that. So, you know, I get flack for even, sometimes I even mention, you know, where I am in my life and I get nothing but shit over it. And it's like, whatever, you know, that's talking to a traumatized community, but I give total space and respect to people that land in other places or haven't land any place yet at all. And I, I wanna make that really, really clear. But the research on, on faith is, uh, that didn't come from me, that came from uh, some academics on the East Coast, number one. And number two, again, it's finding a cause greater than ourselves. And I think we can all agree to that. I think we can have a uh, mutual respect and understanding on that. I like that answer. I appreciate that. Thank you. A great, great question. I'm glad you flush, we flushed that out. Um, I don't see any hands. Any? Uh, I have my I hand up. Okay, <laughs> I don't know Rebecca. If you can see me. I talk too much anyway. So no, I would just like to say that um, in reading this book, I think I learned a lot about more about trauma than I had ever realized before. I think I recognized. You'd probably find this hard to believe, but um, in my time in the LDS Church, I was 
very silent and very shy and very quiet. I literally could almost not make a sound. If I was asked to give an opening prayer and sacrament meeting, I would write it on a piece of paper. And I, and this is like five years ago, I would walk up and I would have it in my hand and I would read it because I was just so nervous to even utter anything. And I just kind of thought, well, I, that's just my personality. Then on the other side of Mormonism, I realized that's not really my personality. I actually believe, and your book kind of pointed this out to me, I think I was consistently traumatized by what was happening at church. I just never felt safe. I felt very nervous. And I guess I never realized that sort of receding or freezing was a form of, of trauma, you know? And so I've kind of been last couple of days looking at that in myself and going, that is so interesting. Is that what was happening? Because I definitely, definitely suppressed my personality whenever I was at church and interacting with those people. So just as a post-Mormon, I'm reading this on a whole nother level. And I know that, you know, this is a universal book is for everyone, but I guess my question is, have you had specifically post-Mormons reach out to you and say that something really resonated in this? Because I found it like almost written for us. <laughs> You know, uh, Re yeah, Rebecca, the, the answer is yes. I've had tons of people, um, Mormon and, and otherwise, evangelical Christians, uh, agnostics, uh, all over this, all over the spectrum. The the I started writing the book as I mentioned 15 years ago. I started writing the book as a TBM, and I finished writing the book as a postmo. And while I never mentioned the word Mormon once. I've had many people say, you know what, I know what you were talking about there. And you know what, they're absolutely right. <laughs> you know, but I, I, again, my audience is very broad. You know, a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, when, when you write a book, it, a couple of things. One is you're really putting your, you, you know, blood, sweat and tears on the line. And you never know if you're going to get ridiculed and and uh, ignored or if it's going to catch. You, you, you know, it's kind of a volatile moment. Uh, um, uh, anyway, it's it's a it's a sensitive moment, and then you know the book comes out, and the BBC calls from London, and I fly to London do an interview, and the NBC calls, and they do a national thing. And last week I was on um, George Norrie Coast to Coast AM, and then here I am with you guys. So it just gets bigger and bigger, and and so I think I I think I might have done something right here, and. Um, well, I don't use any words of Mormon. My sister read part of the appendix where I talk about the 24 things I learned in San Quentin prison, and she was pissed because she knew I was talking about the church, uh, about how we don't rank sins or we don't rank crimes. And in San Quentin prison, they, you know, if you're in for murder and, and they're in for rape and you're in for kidnapping, and you're in for uh, uh, bank robbery, you don't say, well, at least I didn't do that, or at least I didn't do that. You know, crime is crime. It harms society. It harms people. It harms yourself, um, and we don't rank it. In the Mormon church, we rank sin. Uh, in, in my belief system now, there's no ranking. We're all a bunch of fuck-ups. <laughs> you know? So, so um, the point is, there's you will notice and i'm here to just say it's there on purpose uh but again respecting the fact my audience is is very broad but you know the post-mormon crowd is my tribe and that's why i feel such a connection with with everybody you know here i think i did i answer your question landon i tried to 
or, or I mean, I'm sorry, uh, that was Rebecca. Yeah, you did. Absolutely. No. And I love that you know that you put those in there and we all recognize they're like Easter eggs, right? We're like, yes, I knew it. So <laughs> I think yeah. it's great. Can you see the other people that are raising their hands? We have I must have. Everybody's either really bored or I've answered things so brilliantly. No, no, no. We have, we have Chad Mike, and, yeah. Mike and Chad are waiting. So why don't we do Mike first? Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, Randy, uh, really appreciated this. And really appreciate your um, working with uh, Arell and Chris Anderson over the years. I uh, most of my career was in Southern California, and I I, uh, I worked with Arell on different things, and uh, he had me speak, uh, give economic forecasts from time to time. But anyway, and you know where I'm coming from, I love the LDS Church, and uh, though people that hear me talk. In church may not agree with that, um, and I've had people stand up. I've had somebody's—I guess a number of people that protest the things that I say. But I believe that one of the attributes, if you believe that God is relatively omniscient, would be that you've got to know both sides of things. And so I think it's important to be able to analyze that. My favorite uh, art series is Thirty-six Views of Mount Fuji and One Hundred Views of Mount Fuji because of the value of perspective. But I was curious, and you, basically I, I didn't realize you were, uh, I guess, uh, post-LDS. I was curious about, one of the things I love is to be able to discuss things in classes. And um, I guess some people would say I'm known for my candor, but how do you tactfully, let's say, speak to an elders quorum or a gospel doctrine class tactfully um, and yet get your point across. Um, even this past Sunday, people were talking about avoiding social media and you know, not contending. And I was saying, basically, we in this forum could not raise a Captain Moroni with this attitude that we have. Um, you know, the whole idea of ships, the armor of God, you know, you're built for, let's say, battle theoretically, but if you just stay in your room and protect yourself and your kids, I mean, that's that's not really helpful. But I'm just curious about how you have effectively conducted dialogue with people that maybe aren't, aren't into, as Shakespeare said, uh, in peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger, you know, and, and on and on about and um, be copy now to men of grosser blood and teach them how to war. So how do you be candid? It sounds like you, well, you definitely are. How do you do that in, let's say, LDS groups, essentially? Yeah, that, that's a tricky, uh, that, that, it's kind of walking through a landmine field sort of thing, really. Uh, the I, I haven't been inside a Mormon church for for several years, and the world that I'm in now is so 180 degrees different. You know, Biola University is a Christian university, but once a year they invite in atheists from the community. They're all friends, and they have these discussions, debates, whatever you want to call them, in front of the whole student body, and it's a healthy discussion. And at the end, 
Some people leave Christianity and go to atheism, and some atheists go to Christianity. And, and everybody's friends, you know? Think about that for a minute. That's what a healthy dialogue looks like. Think of uh, them inviting RFM and Bill Real and John DeLynn and Lindsay Hanson Park into the Marriott Center and debating the Q15 in front of the entire BYU student body. It's absurd, okay? Right. So, so my mind is now so far from that. I, you know, when you're when you're dealing with a a group that's kind of a powder keg, the wrong spark, thinking of my own family, and it all blows up. You know, you think, do I want to blow this thing up, or do I want to maintain some kind of cordial, you know, uh, polite acquaintances, you know, in my family? And I don't know the answer to that very good question because. It's so highly charged. I think of Mormonism now as making these incredible truth claims that all religions are wrong, all their professors are corrupt, all their creeds and worldviews are an abomination. And that's in the courtroom, that's called uh, onus probandi. When you make a claim, you have the duty to back it up, but they won't back it up because they won't even discuss it. And if you even bring it up or challenge it, it all blows up. So that's the problem. I don't have a good answer. Maybe somebody else does. If you do raise your hand, how to how to maneuver through those minefields. I wish I wish I had a better answer than that one. I've got another question too. I was curious about uh, with kids, uh, you, you touched on something and I was curious about different ways or ways that you found best to uh, open up your kids to be able to discuss difficult topics. You, you know, I have four kids. They're all at one level or another out of the church. My youngest is at UCLA. And before he went off to school, uh, it, it, it must have been shocking for him because until he, he got kind of, um, you know, through high school, I was kind of your typical TBM dad who, you know, the church, at least in my mind, hijacks your belief system and, and you don't have beliefs. You just parrot the beliefs you're told to have. And uh, and so in the deconstruction process, I needed to come up with, uh, hey, what what do I believe? So it was really great. I sat, I sat down with them and I said, you know, you're going off to college and let's talk. And we had these awkward conversations or at least what would have been awkward as a TBM. And we talked about, the finances and his responsibility um, with finances. We talked about uh, drinking and the, I said, if you decide that you want <clears throat> to drink or go to a party and have alcohol, if you have more than one drink, please don't get in a car with somebody that's had more than one drink or not at all. And if you have a problem, give me a call. I'll get an Uber. I'll drive up there and no questions asked. And <clears throat> we had, frank conversations about safe sex. We had frank conversations about all this stuff. As a TBM, that would have not even been a discussion point. And um, I can just tell you, now I talk with my kids about real stuff, real life, or we're much, much closer um, because our conversations have gotten so much deeper and not just about sex and drinking, but lots of things about belief systems, one of my kids read Richard Dawkins and was telling me how wonderful atheism is. And so I said, hey, great. And so I read his book 
And I came back and I said, you know what? Chapter four, where he really lays it out, I think is utter absolute bullshit. And here's why. And and we had a fun debate about it. And, you know, I understood closer to where he was coming from and he came closer to understanding where I came from. So um, I can just say it didn't happen overnight, but now I'm having real conversations with the kids and I love it. Yep, I do, yeah. I do too. Yeah. So, uh, Randall, I live in a little town of Mona, Utah, and uh, I, I'm a guy that raised uh, four kids in the church, but uh, I essentially left the church about 10 years ago. Um, the thing that, that I, as I think about it, that I, you know, putting this in the context of trauma is, is seeing what uh, my kids go through, um, they've all stepped away from the church and just dealing with extended family, uh, even their grandparents, you know, it's difficult for my kids, but it's also difficult for the grandparents to see us go down a different path. And it, it's almost like, a, a, an intergenerational trauma that just keeps cycling somehow um yeah it is isn't it here here's some good news though the church claims 70 million members <laughs> if you round up okay well people are leaving every day i every time i do a podcast with rfm or john delin and um and there's some others coming up it's crazy people email me or send me a text or send me a Facebook message, whatever. People that are the last people on planet earth I would ever think were going to leave the church saying I'm out. And, and, uh, and so this is what's happening. The information's getting out there and the church with all its hundreds of billions can't stand up to the truth and they can't stand up to the internet because I've been in the studios that these guys have and they're not living large, that we're not going to, into the NBC studio. We're going into, you know, Zoom calls like this. But the word's getting out. And so stay optimistic because the church is having a real tough time. And it's going to continue because they simply cannot deliver sensible answers on some very honest, straightforward questions. I guess that's the first part of it. But in the meantime, just... I, I really advocate being kind, being empathetic. I used to be that TBM ignorant prick, er, you know, arrogant, buying stuff, showing off the Rolex watches, which by the way, I either they've been stolen, lost, or given to charity. It, it brought no no satisfaction as I did the whole, you know, white entitled Mormon guy thing. It's it's a miserable existence. And people are waking up to that and people are coming out. So I guess that's my best shot at that. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. Uh, you know, I think my older boy, he's, he's 28. And uh, most of the, the guys that he served his mission with, uh, they're out now. Mm -hmm. and, and they even get together, the ones yeah. that kind of live close to each other. So. It's almost yeah. like a new community being built with Mormon roots. You know, you're right, Chad. And 
as I mentioned, I live in Southern California and I have a whole group of friends that I met at BYU that also live in the same area. And every year we get together for a Christmas party and one by one, we all started off TBM, you know, leaving BYU, moving back to Southern California. And one by one, people started dropping out of the church. And you know what, who the last one was, who, who clinged on to it longer and harder than anyone was me, okay? And I, I think back to how kind they were to me, even though I was a TBM arrogant prick, okay? So I extend grace to other arrogant pricks, <laughs> you know, because I was extended charity when, when I was in that boat. So, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're the ones to just set a, a kind, respectful tone and understand that we used to be there too. At least I did. Yeah. Uh, Landon. Yeah. I've got a question kind of about the structure of the book. Um, uh, I, I listened to it on Audible and, you know, it just came out a couple of days ago. So I was kind of speeding through it, trying to get through it all. And I didn't quite make it through the whole thing. But uh, you, you were telling stories and you'd kind of tell the story and then you'd stop and you'd, the next chapter you'd maybe pick it up. And, and, and the, the story kind of extended. It wasn't like you told the whole story at a time. Was that since it was Audible, it was kind of hard for me to tell. Were you following that that chart with the thrive and the different things and, and hitting each side or what was the, the intent with those different stories that way. You know, Landon, I, I'm glad you said that because uh, the book, if you have the hard copy, it's got a lot of uh, what we would call infographics or mind maps and diagrams and charts and that help explain the concepts because I'm taking a lot of a volume of information and trying to get it into a, a you know one singular book. And so, yeah, on Audible, you lose some of that explanation. And what can I say? I listen to Audible books myself. That's how I more efficiently go through books. Um, and I don't know how to fix that. I did my best to explain the, the diagrams as we went through them. But there's no way around it. When you have the physical book, it, it sometimes it flows a little bit better. And I haven't come up with a complete solution other than to just acknowledge that your your observation is very valid. Yeah, Randy, some books have an, a, a PDF on Audible. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Bruce. And we're we're about to post it on the uh, on the website. The PDFs. Yeah, with the Audible version just came out by surprise, like I say, a few days ago. So we're 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 cranking. I it was so good. Hey, oh, are you done, Landon? <laughs> I was just saying it was still good. I, I just was noticing that and I was going, I think there's something here that I'm missing. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's not you. It's me. And um, and I've <laughs> got to think in the next edition how to how to if you have any suggestions, give me a call or an email or something, you know, and and let me know. So I had a question along the lines of that. So, and and I found the Audible book, I understood the flow of it once I kind of figured out what you were doing, that you were taking each stage and then going back and revisiting each person's story. My only problem with the audio book is just that I wanted to highlight things, you know, so then I had to grab my book, find the page you know, and go yeah. back and forth. But that's just because there was so much good information. So it really was put together, you know, I thought in a, a really great flow and a really good way. Did you have proofreaders? Did you have anybody ahead of time that read it and helped you with it? 
Yeah, several, probably four or five proofreaders. Um, in fact, the wonderful RFM was one of them. Um, and, well, that uh, explains the book. <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 got an eagle eye. He's a very analytical guy. Wait, did you yeah. say evil eye or eagle eye? Oh, I wasn't quite he's evil. Both. <laughs> which is which? Yeah. You can quote me on that. He's he's horribly evil, but he's also got an eagle eye. I get it. I get it. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah, but you know, the thing is with books, and I've written a few now, is you you kill yourself writing them and editing them and re, redoing it. And it comes out and it's like, as soon as it comes out printed from the printer, you get these cases delivered to your office and you open one up, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. it's, it's just the process. And you every have, author I talk to has the same has the same experience. And you've written other books. Why don't you tell everybody? Like I said, I couldn't put everything in your bio that I was reading. What there's a couple other that he's written that are really worth checking out too. Yeah, I've consolidated them. Um, the, I wrote a textbook. It's in the third edition. I don't recommend that one. That's why I get all these cases. The big the big disaster cases are all over the place. I, and I wrote that in the 19, early 1990s before most of you, all of you were born. So um, that, there's a textbook. I wrote a, a book called Me, We, Do, Be. It's a kind of a game plan for life. Me is how we think. We is our relationships. Do is, you know, getting our stuff done. And be is what we're becoming. And, you know, that's the kind of book that you give to a kid at the car wash. And you come back the next week and they just go, wow, I, I read that book and I'm going to you know, I, I'm going to go to trade school or I'm going to go to college and they kind of get lit on fire with it, with a life game plan. Um, that, that got me on the today show. I'm hoping for the same thing with this book. Um, and then the other book I wrote, um, Leo Fender is a big, uh, I'm a, I'm a weird dude. I fully admit it. And I'm really into Houdini collections and, and Leo Fender guitar collections. And, uh, Leo Fender lived two streets from me. My dad worked for Fender and I wrote uh, the book Leo Fender with Mrs. Fender, Leo Fender's wife. And uh, it was great to really understand how that his genius mind worked, because today they sell a billion dollars of guitars a year. And uh, so if you're into guitars, uh, that that book's been done pretty well. That's excellent. And then also maybe just tell people how they can um, listen to your podcast because he has a podcast of the same name, which oh, is yeah, yeah, yeah. for Thanks. years. Yeah, so good. <laughs> yeah, the post-traumatic training podcast, as I mentioned, I do with uh, Nicole, Nicole Brown Simpson's sister, Tanya. And that's on Spotify. It's on Apple. It's everywhere. Um, it's in its second season. And that's a big deal because algorithms kick in if you survive a year. Most podcasts go for maybe six or seven ep episodes and fizzle out. And um, we've got some really, we've had some great guests and we have some really great big names lined up. And we also have people that uh, are not well known. Nobody knows them, but they have they have equally incredible stories. We don't really just go on, you know, um, how well you're known it's, it's more the quality of the story um and what's nice is like you know we can sit around as postmos or where we are with mormonism or nuance members whatever and not really get the point but then we hear somebody talking about their experience with their trauma from an entirely different angle and boom it makes sense you know and uh 
like I say, we're we're all working through this stuff together. I'm no, I wrote the book. That probably means that you're all ahead of me because I was so obsessed with trying to figure this out. I had I had to do it. But we're we're all in this together. Um, and I love sitting down and having these conversations on the podcast. I think I'm going to start talking about Mormonism a little bit. I don't want it to take over the podcast because uh, it's not my story. It's our guest story. But if it comes up naturally, I think I'm at a point where, you know, I'm OK talking about it again. My style is to be kind and respectful and give credit wherever I can. But, you know, I, I personally think it's a harmful organization and I think it needs to be talked about. Wow. Well, do we probably have room for if anyone has a last question or something, and then we will let Randy get on with his evening. It's been just absolutely wonderful. And again, I would say if you have not had the chance to read this book, it's just I would say life-changing. Like Randy said, he figured it all out for us. Now we can just learn from uh, his years of trauma, right? <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Any any other thoughts or? Do we have any other, th even just comments on how the book impacted you. If anybody wants to say anything as we're just finishing up here. Anybody else have any other thoughts or questions or anything? A quick input. Um, yeah. I know, I think it was, um, Bruce said he saw his therapist today, been with them for a really long time. I've been with my therapist almost 10 years. Um, she specializes in trauma. Um, I honestly, I'm going to dive into this tonight. Um, I downloaded the Kindle version um, and I'm most likely going to drop her an email and go, hey, you should probably include this in your practice because she does specialize in trauma. So um, any new information, um, she's she gobbles it up. So as a researcher, I'm, I'm sure she will um, be right into that. So uh, I'll be sending sending links to everybody that I know. So thank you so much for, for doing this. Well, thanks, Melanie. And and I want to, this is a small, small enough group I can get away with this. And I, I, I never do this, but I'm going to give you my cell phone number. Um, <laughs> and I say that because if you get it like, hey, I don't agree with you there or, hey, you're missing this or, hey, I, this really helped uh, and needs to be emphasized more. Any any feedback I welcome. Like I say, <laughs> you guys, we're in the same tribe, you know, um, and I love the conversation and, uh, and same thing with the podcast, you know, yeah. feedback is really important. And uh, and and I, I like to think that I'm in the same, uh, you know, same boat everybody's in. And uh, so I, I welcome any thoughts or feedback. And Bruce, did I see your hand up there? Yeah, I just have a comment. I've been with my therapist uh, for five or six years. Um, I'm gay and I didn't come out until after I retired. And uh, it, it took a quite a long time for him as a never Mormon to kind of get up to speed on some of my traumas, but he's up to speed. And I've even referred another ex-Mormon here in Southern California to him because it does take a little bit of understanding of the, uh, the technical term I believe is mind fuck. Um, of the yeah, term. that's the academic term. Yeah, that's the <laughs> academic term, but it is, it is worth it just kind of methodically explaining um, and in, 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 in the good book club, we have uh, a couple of uh, my friends that are never Mormons that are members. And 
when they hear us talk, they're going like, really? And yeah. you have to explain some of the absurdities. And uh, on Mike, you were talking about how you bring things up at church. If you're the teacher and you want to be released, just bring up something controversial and you'll be released almost immediately. Yeah, or or wear a tank top one one day a week or a year. <laughs> hey, you know what, Bruce? Um, one of my cases was the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And I think you'll find this interesting. I walked in the door as a TBM and I got into the Pulse nightclub with, it was just the owner and me uh, in there for quite a lot of time. And I got a play-by-play -play of what happened there. And I'm going to skip over that or I'm going to start crying. It, it was it was one of the most horrific uh, emotions and sights I've ever seen. But I'll tell you this. I walked out the door pro-LGBT. And I thought at the time, I, I don't know what's going on. I can't explain it. There was a lot of cognitive bias and dissonance. But I know my church screwed up on this. And here I am in Laguna Beach put in charge of Prop 8. And I apologize. I've apologized to everyone I've ever come across. And I'm apologizing to you for ever getting involved with Prop 8. I was, if you know the name Steve Peters, he's the first, he was patient zero in the United States for getting AIDS. I was just in his home. I just apologized to him. And um, and he is, um, uh, Steve is uh, 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 still alive. Uh, and like I say, he's he was the first patient to to get AIDS in the United States. Um, he's also was a Christian pastor. And I on Mormon stories, I, I let people know the Mormon church may not want you or you may not want them. I, I don't know. That's whatever. But but um, I told folks about gaychurch.org because you put in your address and up will pop, pop 12, 15 churches in your neighborhood that welcomes the gay community. And I piss off evangelical Christians all day long. They invite me to come speak. And then I say, that's great, but I'm pro-LGBT and they disinvite me. And I tell them how wrong they are. So I'm speaking up, um, but there's a lot of a lot of churches that welcome the LGBT community. And, uh, and I'm very loud and proud about it. Yeah, great. So was Prop 8 then not your issue at all? You had no issue with that at the time Oops. when it came out it was like why are we picking on these people since when do we pick on people this is a this is a, a minority group in society and jesus taught to to be kind to them and love them you know i i can't imagine jesus out there with a, a prop eight sign you know so but then i was called you know to be a the leader of the pack and I didn't have the spine. And frankly, I I'm embarrassed to say I didn't think about it hard enough to say, you know what, up yours, I'm not doing it. But it's something I'm embarrassed about. And I think it's important that our LGBT friends hear an apology from somebody that participated in that nonsense. And uh, so far, uh, they've been very gracious and accepted my apology. And I, I hope that continues. And if they don't, that's fine. I'm still gonna apologize. Well, some people in the gay community view the Mormon church's involvement as beneficial because it got things rolling that allowed gay marriage across the U.S. And 
if you say that to a TBM, that kind of pisses them off. But I think there's a a bit of truth to that. Um, hey, piss them off. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, and, and I, I'm the the segment that I'm involved in has open discussions, friendly discussions. Uh, LGBT folks are welcome. Not just welcome as membership, welcome in terms of being part of the clergy, running the show. Um, I, I just that's that's where I've landed for now, at least, and I'm quite I'm quite happy with that, and I'm glad that there's a lot of like-minded people that I I can connect with. Yeah, I was just curious when you brought up Prop Eight, Prop Eight, because that was one of my very first moments where I went, "What?" Because I was in Relief Society and they had chartered a bus here in Utah, and they were going to bus us down to California to Canvas. And also, there had been some talk that the temple was under attack, and they wanted us to go lay in the road in front. Of, I am not making this up. They said we're going to go protect the temple by sitting and laying in the road in front of the temple so no vehicles can get through. And I was sitting there, and everyone around me went, and I went what? Wow. <laughs> it was one of those moments where I realized I am so completely in the wrong place with the wrong people that I don't even know what to do. So it was an absolute pivotal moment, that Prop 8, that everybody was on board to get on a bus and go canvas and go protect the temple. And yeah, that was a big issue for those of us yeah. who are a little older that remember it. So Well, you're, you're wiser than me because I am so embarrassed. I just didn't, I was a lazy learner. That's what I was. I was a lazy learner. I didn't think about it very hard. And I did stupid shit that I'm now sorry for. <laughs> well, they put you in charge. That also is a way that somebody doesn't think too clearly because you think, oh, I'm in charge of this. So I have to help others do it. And you don't necessarily think it through. So, yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. So this is more reasons that we all need your book, right? Absolutely. Process the trauma, <laughs> being told you need to get on the Prop 8 bus or all of that. You just need help. Well, whether oh my whether my book is right for you or not, you, you make the decision. But but there are lots of resources and uh, out there to help us heal. I think just having this conversation mm -hmm. is therapeutic, at least for me. You know, and and oh, here's another fun fun fact to kind of end our conversation with. Our neurology, and I just learned this, our neurology, when we when we uh, are indoctrinated or, or whether or, or, or educated with something, it, uh, it, it actually creates a pathway of neurons in terms of our thinking <clears throat> to reverse that or change that takes at least and there's here's the punchline at least 27 exposures to the correct point of view. So if we're having a hard time rewiring our brain, that's normal. We are literally rewiring our neurological pathways. So let's be kind to ourselves. Let's cut ourselves a little bit of slack. Let's cut other people's slack. Let's even cut TBM some slack and um, people with different belief systems slack because I, at the end of the day, I think most people are trying to do the right thing. I know there, there's some people that are evil and destructive and, you know, all that. But most people are doing what they think is right. And, uh, you know, 27X, remember that. We're all doing, I think we're all on the right path. 
Oh, I love that. That's a perfect, perfect place to end. I absolutely love it. So thank you, Randy. That was amazing. Let's uh, go to our final slides really quick to see us out and then we'll end the recording. But how amazing. Um, I want to remind everybody that this will be on the Good Book Club podcast, in addition to all of our other book club meetings and um, bonus events like this amazing event with Randy. Um, very quickly, our next book is Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, and that's going to be on Sunday, March 12th at 11 a.m. Mountain Time with Kevin Nilsson as our presenter. And if anybody's here who does not belong to the Good Book Club and would like to join, we have an awful lot of fun reading together. Um, you can look us up on Facebook. That's our logo. You can find us on Instagram. You can send me an email to thegoodbookclub at mail.com. Just try to find us if you're interested and come read with us. We would absolutely love to have you participate. Thank you, everybody.